September 20th, the last day of summer. That's just exciting for us because we're going to get into fall and we get to just keep talking football week after week. Kale's back here with me for another week. Kale, how was your NFL Sunday? Listen, you know it's an exciting time of year when uh, the vast majority of the league is starting out one and one You know, there's a lot of parity. And, I mean, you could just feel that little first bite of chill in the air. It's falls rolling around. We've started to see the leaves turn a little bit of color. We're starting to get that foliage out and about, man. Best time of year for me, personally. Is it now? I like October, too. October gets into a a good part of the season when we start to figure out if teams are good. But that's not going to stop us from trying to figure out if these teams are good after just two weeks. In fact, you're going to hear us do that for the next half hour. So let's get right into things. You know how the countdown works at this point. We've got the four things we learned, we think. So the first thing I think we learned from yesterday concerns that incredible Sunday night game we just watched. And Kale, what did you think of the decision-making by the two coaches in the endgame scenarios there between Reed and Harbaugh? I mean, part of that comes down to uh, a bit of the way the ball bounces, you know. It's tough to, uh, it's tough to go out on a uh, Clyde edwards Elair fumble, but, I mean, really, you see everyone on Twitter posting the Randy Marsh gif of John Harbaugh just putting it all on the table, really just the clip going around of him looking at Lamar going, do you want to do this? Do you want to end this game? Lamar saying yes. Just, ah, it's it's a really great sign of resiliency from this Ravens team. We know the Ravens' defense is going to be slowed down a little bit by this Marcus Peters injury. They've suffered multiple injuries in the running back room that was really going to define a run-heavy team. And Lamar Jackson comes out against the Chiefs. Yay threw two interceptions early, but 239 yards through the air, 100-plus yards rushing, three total touchdowns, really putting this team on his back when it mattered most. And it's this is feeling like a special Ravens team. Is it now? Well, I, I love seeing Lamar have a game like that on national TV against a Mahomes-led offense and a Chiefs team that had really just kind of owned them the first couple times they met up throughout the course of their young careers. And what I loved about, I mean, everyone's, everyone's giving Harbaugh so much credit, and I just think he handled the situation really well. I don't think going for it was a revolutionary move. In fact, I'd be sitting right here blasting him if they didn't go for it on that fourth down. And I also think, you know, just doing, doing what he did asking Lamar, he wasn't really asking Lamar if he wanted to go for it. He just wanted to give Lamar the confidence to know that it was his time to go win the game. Because you're not going to get a no out of Lamar in that situation. And if he had any thought of punting, there's no way he goes up to Lamar and says, hey, Lamar, you want to go for it? Because Lamar's not going to just say, oh, no, let's send Sam Cook back out on the field. I don't think I got this. So that was just a master stroke of putting your guy in a spot where he knew he had the whole confidence of his team behind him. And it paid off. Now, on the flip side, Andy Reid, I mean, we can talk about Clyde Edwards-Elair fumbling all we want. But they zipped down the field two plays and got into Harrison Bucker's field goal range. And at that point, they just tightened up and didn't seem to want to go definitively win the game. They were too scared about making the big mistake. And that's always when the big mistake shows up. And I just think on that second and three play, like if you really want to keep it on the ground and make sure you're not leaving too much time for the Ravens, why don't you roll Mahomes out? Why don't you give him a chance to make a play with his legs instead of putting the ball in the hands of your first-round running back from last year who's been spotty at best? So that's my two cents on that, but what did you think? 
Yeah, I mean, that being said, this isn't a full blueprint on how to take out the Chiefs. I mean, you can't no. rack up 480 total yards and 36 points every week against this Chiefs team. This defense isn't going to be fantastic. It's going to make a lot of big play stops and kind of show out the way Tyron Matthew came up with two interceptions in that game. But this isn't a team where, I mean, Pat Mahomes is still throwing for 343 yards. He's still picking apart a Ravens defense that was, yes, injured. But this is most of the mistakes that Pat Mahomes made in this game, whether it was just stretching a little bit too far on that interception, trying to throw it out, it felt almost it's, – it's too big for his athleticism. He, he's such a gifted and talented athlete. But there's a time and place where you kind of need to be a little bit more conservative. That being said, it may not come from Andy Reid's side of things where you maybe want to be more aggressive trying to ice this game. You maybe want to actually shut this one out instead of being tepid and worrying about mistakes. But as Patrick Mahomes, you've got to be a little bit more of a game manager. We've seen so many high-flying plays from Pat Mahomes that we're used to him making those throws maybe four times out of five. But, you know, some of those plays kind of cost him down the stretch. You've got to be able to kind of manage the situation a little bit more Pat Mahomes specifically has to play a little bit more conservatively and just, you know, make sure you're holding on to the ball. Make sure you – and not every play that you launch has to be some earth-shattering highlight, real-worthy play. you got to just learn to sometimes, you know, maybe throw a check down, maybe throw the sack or, like, take the uh, take the hit as a quarterback. You know, not everything has to be sports under top ten from Pat Mahomes. I agree, and I think the maybe the, the hot take on that situation that I sort of actually believe is that it's a good thing that that happened to him last night. It's a good thing that he saw that maybe his hubris about his own athleticism came back to bite him at one point because we've seen his entire career, every time he makes a highlight, he tries to go out and make a highlight-style play, it usually ends up working out. So learning that, hey, if I try to throw the ball like this on 3rd and twelve in a specific scenario where my team's up by 11 and it doesn't work out, maybe I can actually take something from that and learn how to manage that game a little bit better. So it's week two. The Chiefs take a loss, but I don't know. I, I almost feel like they can feel still pretty darn confident about themselves heading forward. Speaking of teams that are feeling pretty good right now, we're currently sitting at nine teams with 2-0 and records. That was maybe a few less than we expected heading into the week. As Kale said, so many 1-1 and teams. But of those 2-0 of those two teams, there are only two in the AFC. They come from the AFC West, and they're not the Chiefs. But if we have a second strong takeaway here, what did we learn about the Raiders and Broncos from yesterday? Raiders especially for me, after a... Week one showing by the Pittsburgh Steelers that clearly dismantled this Buffalo Bills attack. I was really impressed by just how good this John Gruden, Derek Carr offense is, especially without Josh Jacobs relying on. And, you know, they didn't really rely too heavily on guys like Darren Waller. You know, Darren Waller ends up five receptions, 65 targets. It's not necessarily the same showing that he had last week. Being able to turn to Henry Ruggs, being able to turn to Hunter Renfro, being able to turn to you know Kenyon Drake and rely on him both in the passing game and attempting to run the ball wasn't too successful. Peyton Barber <laughs> stepping up, really big deal for them. Uh, they ran for 2.1 yards a carry yesterday in Pittsburgh and still came out with the win. I mean, that is hats off to Gruden and Carr. Unbelievable job. Yeah, and what really impressed me is just how varied 
the passing attack was. Uh, Derek Carr, between one and nine yards, 19 attempts, 15 completions for 142 yards. From 10 to 19 yards, target depth, five for eight, 77 yards, 20 plus yards, a perfect four for four for 144 yards. You know, fantastic effort by Derek Carr. I think if we don't, if it's not already apparent that Tom Brady's the front runner for MVP, Derek Carr is making a very compelling case early on, sort of a Russell Wilson September MVP situation from last year. But he's thrown his name into that conversation as, you know, leading this Las Vegas Raiders team to an unexpected start. And also, it should really be noted that this Raiders defense is much better than we probably gave them credit for headed into this season. You know, Max Crosby, five QB hits on Ben Roethlisberger, you know. Multiple breakups, you know, the one interception by Trayvon Mullen, uh, kind of an arm heave by Big Ben, but still just a really great effort all around by this defense to kind of relatively contain as best you can, at least keep them out of the end zone, uh, a really, really talented Pittsburgh receiving core. Yeah, and I love to see guys who both have been in that organization and guys who are in other organizations stepping it up this year. Jonathan Abrams, a guy who's never been able to stay on the field. He had a great game for them yesterday. They bring in Solomon Thomas, who's a former number three overall pick and is essentially a cast off on what used to be the other side of the bay. He's been phenomenal. Denzel Perryman, Corey Littleton. They got all these guys who just came over and they're having great years so far. So we hope they can keep that up. On the offensive side, you talked about Carr, and I want to give him all due credit. You're a big EPA per play guy. Carr's number two in that on the league on the year. But do you all know who number one is? It's Teddy Bridgewater, the other quarterback in the division. What have we seen from Teddy this year? I mean, talk about really leading a team early on. I still wasn't too high on the fact that this was a genuine battle between Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke. As much as you want to give Drew Locke the credit for the highest highs that he could throw, I love Teddy Bridgewater's high ceiling or high floor compared to Drew Locke's high ceiling, low floor situation. But he's really shown out in these uh, in these first two games for the Denver Broncos. 77.1 completion percentage, 592 total yards, four total touchdowns, zero interceptions. This is one of the more impressive runs by, I've seen by a quarterback just really trying to manage, uh, you know, Jerry Judy being out big problem. Corton Sutlin being banged up in practice to start the year, kind of limping around after week one. He showed out in this game against the Jacksonville Jaguars defense. And mind you, I should note that this these two first games have been against the New York Giants, who have a respectable secondary, but it's an overall pretty poor team thus far, and the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are the Jacksonville Jaguars. And as much hype as we want to give them, this is a pretty, pretty poor defense. But you've got to give credit to Teddy Bridgewater. Per Ben Baldwin's RBSDM, Teddy Bridgewater is ranking second in the league right now behind Pat Mahomes in EPA plus CPOE composite. Uh, just a hair under Pat Mahomes, who's at .3. Teddy Bridgewater coming in at .289. If you pull up his EPA per play, though, he's second in the league as well. He's sitting behind Pat Mahomes at 0.468 EPA per play. Just a really impressive effort all around. And I don't think Teddy Bridgewater, since his injury in Minnesota, has gotten his fair shake. He's kind of bounced around a little bit, spent some time with the Saints. But now it's really looking promising for him. 
This is much better than his year in Carolina. And I think this is, at least for a one-year stopgap, if that's the case, Teddy Bridgewater's doing some really exciting things for this team. Speaking of the Carolina Panthers, you know, the reclamation project from Sam Darnold's not looking too bad either. He, I don't think he played his best possible game in that matchup against the New Orleans Saints, but he's doing just enough to get the job done with a pretty weak offensive line and a very talented receiving group behind him. Uh, this is the best offensive situation he's been in since entering the league, and he's making do with it for sure. You know, picking up that option by the Carolina Panthers might take you out of contention for a quarterback in the short term if they're looking for that. But if you're just looking for a stopgap right now and just someone who can compete, sitting behind the best defense in football right now per EPA and per DVOA, it's this is exactly the kind of just, you know, middleman sort of dude you need right now. He's just managing hard enough. He's making all the right throws. It's, you know, we're still looking at some pretty errant passes, especially in that Saints game. Uh, much less so in the Jets game. But, you know, he, the Panthers are sitting at 2-0. and Same record as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Is that going to hold? Who knows? Probably not. But right now, I like what I see from the Carolina Panthers. They're a pretty fun team. I agree. And if we're going to wrap this up in a catchy uh, TMB sort of way, I think what we learned about the Panthers is that they found a defense in the offseason. Now, Jameis is Jameis, and goodness gracious did Jameis make a couple of Jameis plays yesterday. But... They really found some guys who I think can do good things for them. I loved Jeremy Chin last year as a rookie, and he's really come into his own so far this year. He's getting pressure on the quarterback. He's making plays in the passing game. Shaq Thompson's a beast. He could have won a game ball from us last week, had another good week again. They got pressure on Jameis all day long. They hit him 11 times. Am I reading that right? They hit Jameis 11 times yesterday. Now, granted, Jameis probably holds the ball for too long, but that's an impressive number. A uh, couple picks. They're, they've just figured some stuff out, I think, and I think having the, the coaching staff in place for a second season, even though their head coach and primary assistants are all known for their offense, they still have time to kind of develop with the defense over the offseason. I'm sorry I don't know who their coordinator is, but have to give him props for a phenomenal job through two weeks so far this year. Yeah, fantastic effort, especially, you know, I'm really excited about Brian Burns. Uh, from what we've seen from J.C. Horlis, far this season. J.C. Horns looked really nice. Nice pickup from uh, with the eighth overall pick in this year's draft. And, I mean, I don't know where this Panthers team is necessarily headed, but I like where they've started thus far. Absolutely. And I just read up on it, Phil Snow. And Phil Snow was also <laughs> Matt, also Matt Rule's defensive coordinator at Baylor. So good to just give the guy his time to adjust to the NFL game, and he's been phenomenal so far. That leads us to our fourth takeaway and we're going to kind of wrap this up in a holistic method of comparing the rookie quarterbacks, but I think it has to start with Zach Wilson. Tell us what we learned about Zach Wilson yesterday. Listen, he said he didn't see ghosts, and I do not believe him. That was a – his four interceptions were came in every possible wrong permutation of an interception you can have. It was missed targets. It was trying to do too much with the ball. It was throwing into double coverages. It really wasn't a pretty effort. And, you know, this is really going to help bolster the Pats' defense. They're currently sitting at third in defensive EPA per play in the league. They're looking like a really nice defense. And, you know, it's pretty easy to look like a nice defense when you're picking off a rookie quarterback four times a game. But this isn't 
a referendum on Zach Wilson. This is more, let's take a step back and look at where all the rookie quarterbacks are. Zach Wilson really looks like he's trying to play backyard football out there every single time he steps on the field. It it looks like every time he gets into a small amount of pressure, he's turning it into Johnny Manziel against Alabama where he's scrambling around. He's dropping 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage and trying to launch it up and create something out of nothing. He's got to learn to, you know, take some time with the ball, take some care with the ball, and just get rid of it. You don't have to turn everything into a big, broken play sort of game. Mac Jones, on the other side of the ball, real game manager look. He's doing just enough to help this team get by. And it's really impressive kind of seeing what he's doing with what he's got, if that makes sense. You know, 22 for 30, 186 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions, a couple sacks here and there. But it really comes down to the fact that he looks so accurate at all times throwing this ball, and he's getting it to where he needs guys to get it. But the issue is a lot of his offensive production is going to be reliant on Yak. It's going to be reliant on these receivers being good enough skill players to actually get out into open space, create some extra yardage after the catch. He's not really setting up guys. It's pretty much catch, tackle, bang, bang. And that's good for now, and we'll like and I would really like to see where this goes in the future, but it's not anything that's mind blowing. We were really high on him coming into the preseason. Uh it's it's still looking good, still looking really good. Uh it's but it's it's just good. It's not great. It's not special. Uh, speaking of special, Trevor Lawrence is is not looking good. It's <laughs> it's great transition. <laughs> it's very bad. It's it's been a uh, it's been a very tough first two weeks for Trevor Lawrence. And you could argue in week one, when Trevor Lawrence got out there and he threw three interceptions against the Houston Texans, that there were still plays that looked solid from him. There were still plays that looked like not necessarily back at Clemson, but good enough. It's it's kind of the thing like. How Andrew Luck came out, or how Peyton Manning came out, where he's they're still making big time throws, but they're making mistakes because they're willing to take those risks. This performance against Denver. Denver's got a great secondary, but I mean, 14 for 33, 118 yards, 3.6 yards per completion, two interceptions, one touchdown. It's it's really tough to figure out what he's going to do at a given time. It's really tough to kind of realize like it's. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's the Urban Meyer system. I don't know if it's just the fact that his leading receiver is Marvin Jones and his second leading receiver is James O'Shaughnessy. Who had one catch, game. by the way. Yeah. And do you need guys like DJ Chark to step up? DJ Chark hasn't really done much to start this year. Uh James LaVisca. Rob- Can we get LaVisca? Somebody wanted to pick him up in our fantasy league. LaVisca, two catches for negative three yards yesterday. Uh, one of them being a negative eight-yard play. Like we've got to get, got to get this guy a pass catcher. And what really makes me upset about that is they traded up to draft his college teammate at running back when they already had a really good running back on the team. And running backs should never go in the first round anyway, for the most part. Meanwhile, you've got no existing receivers. You don't have a tight end. Your offensive line is Swiss cheese, and you decide that the need you have to address is to trade up and draft a running back. That was just such a, I mean, it was a terrible decision at the time, even if he doesn't get hurt and miss his entire rookie season. But now it just looks even more preposterous. Yeah, I mean, you'd really think that Urban Meyer coming from the college game uh, 
working with Brian Schottenheimer, working with Daryl Bevel, you think they're going to draw up some sort of creative plays to actually maximize the skill set that Trevor brings to the table, but it's it's just non-existent right now. It looks like a really tepid offense. This defense is extremely poor. And before we move on to our game balls, uh, I just want to bring up Justin Fields. I don't understand why Matt Nagy's still committing to Andy Dalton. Even when Andy Dalton's injured, he's forcing him in. I understand Matt Nagy made him a promise in September or in August that this was going to be his job. But it's yeah, it's, it didn't look great by Justin Fields, but it's pretty clear at this point that even with his sort of middling level of play through two games, it's been just fine. We've gotten just a small taste of what Fields is capable of. Merge that with what he did in college, and I can't understand the argument for keeping Andy Dalton in. I also don't think it's going to be too pretty when Fields comes in. I think it's going to be a real learn-on-the-fly gig. It's going to be a work in progress, but it has to be better than what the current standard is, right? I mean, you have to ask, is it Nagy trying to save his job to some extent by trying to get, just buy himself more time with the veteran in there and say, hey, you guys can't get rid of me. I'm, I'm, I've still got the rookie waiting to develop. Just give me a chance to play him finally. So it's a tough situation for Matt. I, I understand that he was coach of the year ago, three short years ago, um, even if I don't necessarily still believe that in my head. But uh, if you're going to try and start moving forward with this team, and by the way, that defense – very much looked like itself yesterday and can win you games if you have someone competent under center then it's got to be it's got to be fields time so we're on the same page there and we hope to see more of him moving forward but it is time for us to move into our game balls which is always an exciting time of the week kale that there's a pretty obvious one on the offensive side of the ball and i'm going to let you do the honors who gets your offensive game ball listen i came very close to not giving it to the obvious player and came close to giving it to Kyler Murray. 400 yards, three touchdowns, kind of putting the team on his back and doing what he can, running the Cliff Kingsbury offense. But I'm also still not entirely confident that this is a good Cardinals offense. They've faced some pretty weak secondaries in Minnesota and Tennessee thus far, so I'm going to hold off on that. Who I do know is a good team is the Kansas City Chiefs. And what I do know is that Lamar Jackson balled out last night. 239 yards through the air, one touchdown passing. The two picks, it's tough. One comes pretty much all on him. One, you can kind of chalk up to Hollywood Brown, but 100-plus yards on the ground. He's. It looks like at points he's averaging 10 yards a carry. He's not being able to be touched by this Kansas City Chiefs defense. And one of the things I emphasize coming into this year is that if the Ravens are going to win games, they're going to need to pass the ball way more. And I think that became immediately more dire of a need when J.K. Dobbins and Gus Johnson got injured, pulled for the year. But even without Rashad Bateman in this offense, Hollywood Brown has been revitalized by Lamar Jackson. Him passing a lot more. Marquise Brown, 10 targets, 6 receptions, 113 yards, a touchdown. Longest play of 42. He's averaging 18 and a half close to 19 yards, a catch. It's a really, really impressive effort. It This looks like a way more versatile Baltimore offense. They still crush Kansas City on the ground, but I think the difference maker in this, the reason that Lamar got this monkey off his back, slayed this dragon, whatever term you want to use for Lamar actually finally beating the Kansas City Chiefs, now 1-3 all-time against them, but 
I really think the difference maker was actually being able to continually pass the ball. And even after two early interceptions, the fact that he was still able to attack this Chiefs defense, the fact that he was able to still find gaps downfield, it's really promising. And I think with Cleveland looking a little vulnerable, you know, not blowing this Texans team out of the water, uh, barely losing to this Chiefs team, the Steelers kind of looking hit or miss, beating Buffalo, but also losing to the Raiders and looking pretty mediocre at parts. Ben Roethlisberger doesn't look like a fantastic quarterback right now, but this is entire AFC North is one and one. Uh, and I think if this is a college football podcast, we were talking resumes, this Kansas City Chiefs win is a massive resume booster. I think this gives the Baltimore Ravens a really big, decisive victory early on in the season. I think this is a huge morale booster for a team that suffered a lot of injuries, and it really comes on the back of Lamar. No, Lamar was fantastic down the stretch, and it really was something that we knew was probably in there but hadn't seen either against the Chiefs or really in any marquee game against an opponent we knew was that good. So all credit to him. I'm going to go a different direction with my game ball. I know you mentioned Kyler already. I love giving game balls to skill position guys who have career days, but what really struck me about this skill position guy was he may have had a career day, but I think he could go out and do this just about every week now that he's got the proper guy throwing passes to him. And that is the LA Rams, Cooper Cup. Now, Cooper Cup is a guy who always stood out for being extremely good at running routes, extremely good at finding himself separation. And for whatever reason, he was always really good, but he never had like that 1,500-yard FU season with Jared Goff as his quarterback. And I think that's very understandable because I don't think Jared Goff's a very good quarterback. You bring in Matthew Stafford, and so far Cooper Cup has just gone bananas in 2021. Yesterday, nine catches, 163, two touchdowns, along with 44. He's explosive. He's making all the catches. He may, I mean, he's targeted 11 times, so he's being efficient. Clearly, he's the guy Stafford wants when he needs a big play. Cooper Cup's the guy in that offense, and he lit it up yesterday. And what really st- struck me from watching the game film was that there weren't any, like, highlight reel catches there weren't any like tough catches in traffic he just open all the time and he's such a he's such a good efficient route runner is such a huge lift for Stafford and establishing himself early on with this team yeah I mean Cooper Cup really fantastic in this game I think it was almost funny at points how open he was just finding complete holes in this Colts defense what I will say though is this is a team that Everyone in the league seems to love. Every media pundit, every person betting on the game, everyone seems to be infatuated by this Los Angeles Rams team. And while they've played in two pretty significant games, one being on primetime and a complete drubbing of the Chicago Bears on primetime and an afternoon Colts game that really surprised a lot of people, ended up being a lot more contentious than people thought, uh, I'm really curious to see how this game against Tampa Bay is going to shake up this week. I think this is going to be the first real test that Los Angeles has seen. And I don't think against this Tampa Bay team, the versatility of a, or the limited versatility of a Rams passing game is going to cut it at this point. Cooper Cup was one of five players that caught passes from Matt Stafford. If they have to rely on five players, Sean McVay and Matt Stafford are going to have to get very creative in how they end up trying to tackle this. 
No, I agree. And they need to find somebody. I don't know if that's going to be Van Jefferson, Tyler Higby. Maybe there's somebody on the practice squad. I don't know. But they need a third option in the passing game. You're completely right about that. Uh, but as of right now, I mean, Stafford's a clear upgrade, and they obviously have a very smart coaching staff. So things are looking good for the Rams so far. Let's move to the defensive side of the ball for our game ball segment. Um, why don't you lead us off here? Listen, I know we dunked on uh, Zach Wilson a little bit to start this off, but I really just want to give New England Patriots cornerback J.C. Jackson the ball. Mr. INT, as the New England Patriots social team seems to call him, but it was a really great effort in a game that J.C. Jackson kind of needed. It wasn't an incredible effort in that Miami game, uh, you know, allowing 17 yards of reception that Miami game, allowing four receptions on seven targets isn't the best number, uh, but only getting targeted five times by Zach Wilson, allowing three catches, but also ending up with two picks. Last year, I was really on the train of J.C. Jackson, Xavier Howard, duking it out for the interception lead. Uh, I really follow that intently, really pulling for J.C. Jackson. Obviously, Patriots homerism showing a little bit. And I hope the Patriots pay this guy. I really think that, especially with Stephon Gilmore out recently, uh, J.C. Jackson has been the backbone of this secondary. It's been imperative. Uh, no better sign of teamwork than uh, J.C. Jackson breaking up that first interception. Devin McCourty tipping it to J.C. Jackson as he falls on the ground. It was a fantastic effort out there. Something that got me really excited, really brought the Pats defense back in my eyes. Uh, and I think this, I don't know, this isn't necessarily the bend-don't-break Pats defenses we've seen in the past, like we saw in 19 with Brady. This is a defense that can really stand on its own and can kind of carry a Patriots team with a New England offense isn't necessarily firing on all cylinders or is playing a little bit more conservatively than we may like. This is a team that can get after a quarterback, that can force errors, and that can really set up this offense with as good of a position to win as they possibly can. And I think it starts and ends with J.C. Jackson. It absolutely does. And you know what? I love the investments they made in the offseason as well, knowing that they had a strong secondary, going out and drafting heavy in the front seven, going out and getting yourself a Matthew Judon who didn't play a huge factor yesterday, but he's always he's always helpful up front for them. And just keeping guys around. I mean, Hightower coming back this year, that always makes a world of difference. So excited to see what this defense is when Gilmore gets back because I think the only hole you can maybe point to is Jalen Mills in that secondary, who's still a fine nickel corner, I think, but Gilmore's Gilmore. So I, Pat's defense is going to be fun to watch continue to develop. My defensive game ball also goes to a guy that had two interceptions yesterday. However, the only major difference is that he ran them both back for touchdowns, and I took, the, I, I took picks first here, so it wasn't quite fair. This guy was a pretty obvious choice for game ball, but my boy Mike Edwards, two interceptions, both returned for touchdowns, both late in the game against Atlanta yesterday. One of them is a third and four, where if the Falcons convert, and the game's not over, there's about eight minutes left, but he jumps the route, he reads Ryan's eyes all the way, runs it back for the score, and then the second one was basically all set up by his teammate Carlton Davis, tips the ball at the line, but he's Johnny on the spot, he comes down with it, and he scampers the last 20 yards or so for a touchdown, and any time a defensive guy can put 12 points on the board throughout the course of a football game, it's pretty hard for me to deny him a game ball. So, Mike Edwards, I don't know if you are this good consistently, but I'm open to you proving that to me. So, go out and get yourself 
30 pick sixes this year, and we'll have a conversation about you being at the top of the defensive rankings league-wide, and that's a promise. Listen, the multitude of talent that this Tampa Bay Buccaneers team, especially on the defensive end, can throw at you, it really feels like sometimes this is just a Madden custom franchise roster with just the sheer amount of talent and the big names that they have on that side of the ball. I will say it is also a pretty large indictment on the Atlanta Falcons just how Matt Ryan played in that game. I get it, it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but even still, this is a team where you're kind of in limbo, you're ready to sell on Julio Jones, and you've known this since March that you're going to do this, and then you go out and draft a tight end fourth overall when Justin Fields and Mac Jones are still on the board, and they're kind of looking like the two best quarterbacks early in this class. Again, small sample size, two games, but Matt Ryan just going out there and really laying an egg against the Tampa Bay defense. Didn't look much better last week against the Eagles. It's it's really tough times in Atlanta. I thought this Arthur Smith offense was going to bring some life into this team. I thought he was going to turn Kyle Pitts into a more athletic Johnny Smith. I thought Calvin Ridley was going to be tearing through defenses, getting Russell Gage involved a little bit, and it's just been nothing so far. It's that It feels like a really hollow 300-yard, two-touchdown game by Matt Ryan, especially when you're throwing three interceptions in the middle of it and two of them are going back for scores. <laughs> but, I mean, this is as much as credit as I want to give Mike Edwards in this Tampa Bay defense. you got to really just – got to remember that this is the Falcons. This is the Falcons, and unfortunately, this has been the Falcons for a couple years now, and it doesn't seem to be improving, so – I don't know if you want to hand the offense over to Josh Rosen. I don't know if you just want to give Ryan this last season as a thank you for the contributions he's given you over the years, but I'm not putting any money on them to win any single football game in the near or distant future until I see some sign of improvement at the quarterback position. So a game ball that maybe is also an indictment, but, I mean, come on, it's two pick sixes. you got to give it to the guy. Now, on the special teams side of the ball, there was kind of another obvious one, and I hate to keep stealing all the obvious ones from you, Kale, but I do have to go write these up so it makes it a little easier. <laughs> Greg Zerline uh, last week missed a pair of kicks that made all of us question whether he was still capable of doing this at the NFL level. Comes back late in the game, kicks a 48-yarder to give them the lead late. Tampa Bay still comes down and wins it, so Zerline doesn't necessarily get his moment in the sun. But this week... He got his moment when he went out and boomed a 56-yarder at the buzzer to beat the L.A. Chargers. Nothing new, the Chargers losing on late-game field goals. We've seen it for decades now. But Zerline really just throwing it back to 2018 NFC Championship, Greg the Leg. I was pretty impressed with that, and I think Dallas might actually have a kicker this year. So it's a good. It's not a terrible team. Uh, we've seen what their offense can do. We love C.D. Lamb, both of us, and Dak seems to at least be, you know, ninety percent of himself. Uh, and I love Tony Pollard too. So they have a two-headed monster running back. So, you know, the kicker is the final piece of that puzzle. Sometimes, you know, if you're going to put yourself in a playoff position, you're going to need guys to make big kicks down the stretch. And Greg the Leg did just that yesterday. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like watching the Chargers almost lose or get into a chaotic sort of game-defining drive down the stretch. It really feels like as much as we want to praise Justin Herbert, as much as we want to think that this is a changed Chargers team, it's it's still so funny. <laughs> it is just a 
comedy of errors. There's no surer sign that it's 7 to 7.30 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon than watching the Chargers blow a late game in SoFi Stadium. It's truly incredible. The only difference is that San Diego sun spilling on the field is no more, and now we're stuck in the SoFi Dome, and we get to stare at that big circular billboard. Stick it with kickers on our special teams game ball. Uh, maybe this is more just by sheer comparison of the uh, kickers on the opposite side of the ball, but my game ball is going to Matt Prater. This was a game, this Cardinals for Vikings game, was really only something that unless you're an active Cardinals or Vikings fan, you were probably mostly catching this one on red zone or you had it in a box as one of your only options on the afternoon slate of Game Pass or Sunday ticket games. Uh, winding down toward the end of the first half, Minnesota just kicked a field goal to seemingly go into halftime with a lead up 23-21 after Greg Joseph nails a 52-yarder. Cardinals get it back with 21 seconds left. Kyler Murray gets a short one to Rondell Rondell Moore, uh, gets another one, goes a little bit longer to Rondell Moore, 18-yard gain. Set up with Minnesota's 44. Matt Prater nails a 62-yarder, just bombs it. And I think especially after how this one ended with Greg Joseph missing one right at the end to ice it, it's, you know, it just shows you how hard it is to make those long bombs. And you got to get Matt Prater just, you know, at least a little pat on the back. Yeah, anytime a field goal starts with a six, it's automatically impressive to the nth degree. So I agree. And the fact that it ended up being a one-point game as well, I mean, you really can just give it to him for the one kick, and he made others throughout the course of the day. So congratulations to Matt Prater. I think that's his first TMB game ball, so well-deserved, sir. Time to move on to the aesthetic portion of the program, something that, I, of course, am very passionate about. And boy, was I passionate about what I saw yesterday. And I know it's repetitive, and I'm sorry to give the uniform segment to the same team two weeks in a row, but what I saw on Heinz Field's turf yesterday with the Raiders and their whites on silvers and the Steelers coming back out in those blacks on golds, I can't give it to any other game for the best uniform matchup of the day. I mean, I came out with my uniform rankings at the end of last season. I had these teams ranked first and third, respectively. Got to go read the article if you want to find out which team was first and which team was third. But such a beautiful game. No complaints, no holes, chef's kiss, awesome uniform game. Kale, what do you have to add? I mean, whenever you see the Raiders and the Steelers line up on the same field in those uniforms, it really sounds like the NFL films, violins. Dun, 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 dun. You can hear that just building in the back of your head. For me, the best matchup for a Jersey game, I know you don't like them. It came down to the Ravens and the Chiefs for me. I love those Baltimore purples. I love their sort of font style and the numbers. Uh, it looks so fun to see Baltimore flying around in those purple uniforms. And I think the Chiefs' whites, red is a secondary color, yellow is their accent. Just a little bit of accent on that yellow. It They really come down to two beautiful uniforms in my eyes. I love the creativity of Baltimore's. I love just the timelessness of Kansas City's uniforms. I think that's a great game, especially under the lights of Sunday Night Football. Uh, you, I understand, are not a fan of the Baltimore uniforms, but I am, so... That's mine for me. It was still their best uniform combo that they have in their arsenal, and there is something about the Ravens, either in their purples or sometimes if they bring out the blacks in a night game, that makes it gives them a little bit more of that intimidation factor. So I have no real beef with that pick. I think that's a very solid pick. 
And now moving on to the portion of the program that never fails to get me the most fired up. It's our head-scratching moment of the week. I'm going to save mine for last because I just I have to go off. But, Kale, you have a head-scratching moment of the week that made me giggle in so many ways. So why don't you share it with the people? Listen, again, I came very close to giving this a second week in a row to uh, a terrible decision on Justin Herbert's behalf. Uh, you know, that grounding sack or that uh that in grounding, the grasp right yeah in the grasp called a sack to set up a third and long or second and 25 i believe really bad stuff but you know let me save my uh my small chargers fandom for another time uh i want to give this one up to the houston texans uh i did not watch this browns texans game but i will chalk this one up to ben solak of the ringer here's the situation it's third and 15 for the Houston Texans on their own 36-yard line. Texans pick up 13 yards, bring it close to midfield. Uh, Browns are called off sides on the play. Texans have the option between going for 4th and 2 and 3rd and 10. They choose 4th and 2, and they just elect to punt the ball away. <laughs> Kevin Stefanski's reaction live on the broadcast was hilarious. I'm so glad that the and the producers of that game had the ability to just kind of cue in on that because no one understood what was going on. Afterwards, Houston Texans head coach Dan Colley mentions that, yeah, he'd go for it on third and ten. Why not just go for it on fourth and two? Why is, fourth, why is accepting fourth and two just an automatic give the ball up? Why accept the penalty if you're just going to punt it away? Why not take another shot at this? It's it's so confusing to me. There's no, like, Dan Culley was a guy that kind of poo-pooed analytics at the start of the season, really railed against it in press conferences, but what do you think is winning you that game? It's What's the difference between you and John Harbaugh? He was going, it, going for it in a much worse situation. How do you, how do you screw this up? This <laughs> No, he managed to pull defeat from the jaws of victory there, and... I, it's not analytics to decide whether or not to go for it on third and ten or fourth and two. It's base level intelligence to say, hey, either way, we still have another shot at this. I might err on the side of caution. I might take the third and ten just knowing that I can still punt it if the play doesn't work out in my favor. But what you don't do is just give up on the drive altogether and say, hey, we did everything we could, guys. Time to punt. I don't think there's any chance in hell we're ever converting a third and ten. So... David Culley, not off to a flying start in his quest to win over the Texans and their fans and keep his job for more than one season, especially because no one was going near that job with a 10-foot pole in the offseason in the first place. So already, he probably wasn't their first choice, and they will be looking to replace him if he ever does anything this stupid again. Congrats, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after a coach as well, and this grinds my gears to... To a level that I can't really express, but I'm going to try. Last night, the Minnesota Vikings, on the road, have a chance to win a game that I don't think many people expected them to be in. Uh, played really well. Kirk had a good game. Dalvin Cook did Dalvin Cook stuff all afternoon. Both receivers were working pretty well. And K.J. Osborne. K.J. Osborne, as the wide receiver three, stepped up and led the team in receiving. And they were right there. They were going down to drive and win the game. And they convert a first down on second and two. With 40 seconds or so, let's call it 40 seconds, is when Osborne's getting up off the turf. They have one timeout. They're at the 19-yard line. They do not run another play. They just say, this 37-yarder, 
by my kicker, who is new to the team this year, has 21 career field goal attempts as an NFL kicker, is just such a guarantee to make this 37-yard kick that I don't need to try and get a single more yard. And if I'm Greg Joseph in that situation, and I'm sitting there watching those seconds melt away, knowing that my coach is like, oh, he's got this 37-yarder, I'm like, coach, can I just get five extra yards? Can I get three extra yards? Anything. And they send him out there. They take the timeout with four seconds left. They kick a field goal on first down. And surprise, surprise, Greg Joseph, who, again, has 21 career NFL field goal attempts, pushes it wide right. They lose. They're 0-2. And we're all just left to sit here like, is it really that hard? Is it really that hard to manage a late-game scenario? If you need time to think of your play, get up. Go spike the ball, second and 10, 30 seconds left. And you still have your timeout left. Like, do anything. I don't care what I don't care what play you run next. You have Dalvin Cook, like just run it straight up the middle. Uh, you can roll Kirk out. Kirk's thrown one pick that wasn't a hail mary in his last twelve games. Like trust your guys, please. Don't just leave it on the kicker. Uh, Mike Zimmer, you are you are in my crosshairs this week. That was one of the most awful late game scenario bunglings I've seen in a long time. Yeah, I mean forty four seconds left on the clock and just letting all forty seconds run out, calling your timeout and trotting Joseph out there for a thirty seven yarder, which is pretty close. It's not that close. You know, you're at Arizona's nineteen on first and ten. You can't run one more play. And I understand having uh having Dallin Cook banged up a little bit at that point, but they ran him on the first play of the drive up the middle for nine yards. Uh, to start things off. And Madison's good, too. Yeah. It doesn't matter who. Give it to anyone. you got two skilled wide receivers. you got Madison in the backfield. You know, stick it with Cousins or something. Figure something out to pick up, you know, two or three yards. It's going to make a difference. At the very least, it's going to give you some sort of confidence, and you can stop the ball anyway, and you can figure it out. But it's just, you know, if you get up, spike the ball, it's third down, you try one more time, then you kick it on fourth. You have so much to work with. And just letting that slip out of your hands when – the Minnesota Vikings are going to need every win they get. This is a team that really kind of impressed last year. People were relatively optimistic on them coming into this season. And just the start that they've had is pretty upsetting, and it can't be good for any sort of morale in that locker room. No, and I think the crazy thing is Kirk has been pretty good in both games, especially this one. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't very good in Cincinnati last week, and their defense – has not shown any signs of improvement, frankly, from the ab- abomination it was last year. But just to waste those, t- waste these two games when you absolutely could have won either one, and with the group of skill players they have, uh, I think I think it's hot seat central for Mike Zimmer. I think his first coach fired odds are going up by the minute, and he won a TMB uh, Hall of Shame award last year for the Seahawks game. So congrats on making it into this section of the column two years in a row you absolute psycho. But that's going to wrap things up for the look-back portion of the program. The last thing we're going to do is we're going to put our thinking caps on and we're going to tell you exactly what happens in Monday Night Football, as always, even though it hasn't happened yet. So last thing before we get out of here, Lions, Lions Packers, is there any chance the Lions, we wake up tomorrow morning and the Lions won this game? I mean, never say die with this Lions team. This is the Dan Campbell kneecap biters. It's it's going to be fun, and it's going to be hard fought, at least by them, especially after the kind of the run they gave San Francisco early in week one, kind of gave them a bit of a scare, bringing it within eight points. Uh, and 
I really hope that Green Bay isn't sitting on their heels the way they were in week one against the Saints. But uh, two things I can chalk up. If this ends up being a Packers game, this is going to be a monumental performance for this Packers passing game especially. I really think this is going to be a good bounce-back game for Rodgers. I think Devontae Adams is going to return to form. I think maybe don't target Marquez Valdez-Scantling as much. Uh, it's, it really didn't work when you were targeting him on third down. You went one for six on third down and didn't convert a single one the entire day. It really showed last week, and it hurt the Saints a lot. I think this uh, Detroit secondary is much worse than anything the Saints could throw at you, but, I mean, you never know. This Detroit team has heart, and what I will say is, regardless of what happens, this Packers run defense is pretty abysmal, and even with a sort of makeshift line by Detroit, if Penny Sewell's in there and if they're getting any kind of push, this is going to be a monster game for DeAndre Swift. Yeah, I mean, I could see Detroit's offense having some success, but at the end of the day, I got this as a laugher. I got Green Bay up 21-3, 24-10 at halftime. I could see Devontae with, like, nine catches and 115 yards just in the first half alone. Uh, I really I think they're, they're coming out with a massive chip on their shoulder after getting drubbed the way they did last week, and I think they're going to take it all out on this pathetic Lions defense. So don't want to say I'm looking forward to it necessarily. You know, I don't necessarily love watching NFL teams get slaughtered, but I think that's what we're in for. And Lions, feel free to prove me wrong after this program has already come out. So that's what we got for Monday Night Football. We're, we're looking forward to it. You all are looking back on it. It's a great format we have here, and I hope at some point this year we, all, we both just look stupid. So uh, we're, we're signing off for now. Week two was awesome. We learned a lot, but at the same time, I think we're going to look back on this in a week, three weeks, and say, wow, that was kind of funny, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was kind of funny when we thought the Broncos were good or that the Colts were bad. Like, there's just so much that's going to change. So we can't wait to keep taking you all through this season. I mean, get excited for week three, guys. I mean, it's football team Bills. It's Chargers, Chiefs, Saints, Pats, uh, Titans, Colts. We've, we're finally looking at some really promising matchups. And this isn't even counting that Tampa Bay, Los Angeles game that we've already mentioned. This is... If we thought week two was wonky and fun because of some weird matchups, week three is going to have some great matchups. Objectively speaking, it's going to be a lot of fun. And I can't wait to come right back here in seven days and share all the fun takeaways with you all. This is Kalen Jackson. We'll see you soon.